0: So the the talk's mainly going to focus on the question of Australia and Australia's imperialist role in the region. And at the end, you know, have a look at the way that the detention regime actually fits into that. And if we've got time, we can go into some of the specifics around what's happening currently in PNG and what's happening currently in Nauru. But maybe that, maybe, you know, in terms of time constraints, it might be better to actually leave some of that to the the discussion and fill it out in the discussion. Uh, But to start with imperialism and the Marxist theory of imperialism, um, it's really, you know, it's really with Lenin and the Bolsheviks that you get the development of a fully-fledged, um, you know, Marxist theory of imperialism. Lenin publishes a pamphlet, "Imperialism: The Highest Stage of Capitalism," basically. at you know, during the First World War, um, you know, as the, you know, as the war is breaking out, um, you know, in in Europe or the or, or the barbarity of the war is, is is becoming clear to clarify the relationship between imperialism in the war and capitalist development and and to root the you know the war in in the process of capitalist development and i'm really at the you know at the base of the theory is you know marx's theory about capitalist development which says that through the process of, you know, as 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 the economy is industrialised and as capitalism starts to, you know, flourish, there is always a tendency towards the concentration and the centralisation of capital. You know, and by that, you basically basically shorthand for that is the replacement of, you know, sort of smaller, unplanned um, economic activity on the part of, you know, a whole host of firms. You know, more and more as the, comp- as, the as the competition between those fir- the competition the process of competition between those firms actually drives the centralisation of capital. Smaller firms get gobbled up by larger ones, Um, you get the mergers until, you know, by the end of the 19th century, you get, and and the start of the 20th century, you get the emergence of fully fledged, what are called, you know, he calls it monopoly capitalism, you know, the the massive corporations, you know, and, and we know today, you know, obviously the process of concentration and centralisation of capital has just continued unabated throughout the 20th century, you know, in Australia, it's the big, you always talk about the big four banks, or the big three car companies, you know, or the big, you know, two miners, BHP and Rio Tinto in Australia, you know, capitalist development is very, very much understood as this enormous, you know, enormous industrial, um, you know, firms that are really at the centre of the economic system and they become at the centre of the political system. The reason why is because in order to actually undertake that scale of economic activity that's required as these firms grow, it's no longer okay that you just can rely on being able to buy what you need to get production done and then sell it, you know, wherever the market might come up. Those things actually need to be planned and those things need to be fought for. If you're going to go into, you know, say, for, for instance, a massive, you know, venture off the northwest shelf of Australia mining for LNG, for example, or drilling for LNG, it's not that you can't just do that tomorrow, go and mine for LNG. You need to raise enormous amounts of capital. You need to be absolutely sure that you've got the security of the territory. You need to be absolutely sure that you've got the markets, you know, to sell it to, and those contracts are planned years and years in advance, negotiated years and years in advance. The state is central to actually organising all of those projects. You think of any major industrial project that's undertaken, the state and the state agencies are absolutely central to the planning and the execution, you know, of that of that process. You know, and and so um, in in that process of competition, what was an economic competition for Marx when Marx was writing, you know, in the far, you know, in, in, in the far smaller, you know. Sort sort Of um, firms that existed, say, in the mid-nineteenth century, by the end of the twentieth century, it's an open military competition. It's a competition, for, you know, to, to get the access to the resources, to get the access to the markets, to secure the access for the trade routes. You need warfare. You need to be actually organised to fend off the rivals and, and fight to secure to secure those things. Um, so, uh, Lenin, you know, some, some some quotes for for Lenin. Oh, Bakaran actually is a theorist of. Um, theorists of imperialism in the Bolsheviks, the competitive struggle between monopolies becomes a struggle between states to control different parts of the world. The capitalists divide the world not out of any particular malice. This isn't just because they're bastards, you know, Um, but because the degree of the concentration which has been reached forces them to adopt this method in order to obtain profits. It's built into the system of capitalism that you have imperialism and that you have imperialist rivalry. And, I, you know, I've been reading to prepare for this talk the defence white paper that Australia, you know, the Australian Defence Department produced this year, 2013, and it's just all the way through. It's basically, you could, you could read it in Bakaran and just sort of leaps out at you of every single one of the pages. You know, for example, as Australia further develops the north-west shelf as a global source of liquefied natural gas and other petroleum resource exports, freedom and security of the sea lines of communication in the indian ocean become even more important to us and they've actually they've actually mapped out and played war games uh, around the defence of those energy resources in 2012, the defence of that infrastructure and energy resources. There was a massive you know, sort of war games operation to make sure that they could actually secure these resources and secure the, secure, the, secure the shipping routes. Or again, you know, the Middle East, with its enormous oil and gas reserves, will continue to have a critical influence on global energy security for the foreseeable future. Australia has a strategic interest in supporting Middle East security, which is reflected in Australia's commitment to UN and US-led operations. No bidding around the board. Why are we in the Middle East? Because of its enormous oil and gas reserves. They don't make any, you know... defend you know pretense that it's a, a, in in any other region so you know that I mean this is you know more broadly what imperialism is in the, the, the development of Australian imperialism is, is quite a spe, you know quite a specific phenomenon that has its roots in Australia as a, a colonial settler state a white outpost of you know oh, sorry an outpost of white European capitalism in in, in the asia-pacific so obviously as Australia is actually colonized it's part of that you know burgeoning process of imperialism that's developed it's not like they colonised Australia because Australia's got all these resources or you know because Australia's got all these markets they actually colonised Australia to try and head off you know, the other imperialist powers that were, that were mucking around in Pacific at the time. You now, as, as Lenin, you know, wrote, an essential feature of imperialism is the rivalry between several great powers in striving for hegemony, for the conquest of territory. Not always so much for themselves, but as to weaken the, their adversaries and undermine their hegemony. So, really, the rush for Australia was about making sure that France didn't, you know, didn't get in there. You know, pl- plus they could use it as a dumping ground for the, you know, to try and solve some of the social contradictions that were happening within Britain, you know, the massive, you know, poverty, the huge, you know, overflow of the prisons, we can dump some, you know, dump dump some of these prisons in a far far flung colony. Australian capitalism in its own right though begins to develop in the you know in the early 19th century actually to get the development of you know particularly the wool industry and the agriculture you know the agricultural industries and the develop and the development of a ruling class and a capitalist class within Australia that has its own interests you know and very much you know sees itself you know as you know I- increasingly sees itself you know as having its own interests and, and and needing to needing to defend its own interests and and as and as and as the capitalist class develops in Australia it's, it's almost it's like this contradictory it's this contradictory thing where you know on the one hand the nationalism starts to rise but it's always a nationalism and a, and a self-identification with an Australian capitalist interest always under the wing of the British Empire because they never have the power you know it's a few scattered colonies on the east coast of Australia trying to hold on to this massive landmass. let alone you know what would become the colonies that are around it they know their own weakness they understand their own weakness so in order to actually fully develop and get the muscle that you need to really grow 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 as a capitalist power in this period. They absolutely require, you know, the military might and the backup of Britain and of the British Empire, you know, to sort of protect, you know, protect their... to protect themselves in the region, and this is really a central feature of Australian imperialism, and continues to be a central feature of Australian imperialism. When you know, while in the 19th century it was making sure that the British had as much as they could, you know, in terms of military force in the region, you know, through the 20th century, and particularly in the Second World War, becomes the pivot point towards actually looking towards the US and the emerging US empire as really the safeguard of, you know, white capitalist interests in the Asia Pacific. You know, they need the US, you know, to be to be active and intervening in the in the Asia-Pacific region, if they're going to be able to, you know, continue to punch above their weight and grow and prosper, you know, as as an Australian capitalist class. And, you know, we see, you know, there's um, plenty of evidence, for example, that Australia was lobbying very, very hard for the US to go into Vietnam, you know, far, you know, away from the the myth that Australia was somehow dragged into Vietnam because they're lackeys of US imperialism. They were writing consistently to the... the, to the Americans to say we need you here, you know you need to be here. You need to you need to sort of flex your muscles. You need to flex your muscles in the region. And the and in terms of what happens with New Guinea um, and the you know in, uh, the uh, the annexation of New Guinea, it's a really really good example of this actually. Because in 1883, you know you don't yet have a federated Australia. You know you just have these colonies around the place. But you're starting. There's this real real move towards you know a, a self-identified Australian ruling class. You know trying to organise itself. You know, in, in that way. And and one of the first things that you know that, that ha- happens in eighteen eighty three, New Guinea's actually held at that time, not really held, it's not like it's mass occupation or anything like that, but the Germans, you know, have got have got have got New New Guinea or the you know the the, the, the eastern part of, of of that island. And the Dutch have got the, the western part and the, you know their broader you know the Dutch East Indies which, which, which becomes Indonesia. And Queensland, the colony of Queensland, sets out in eighteen eighty-three to take. Uh, the New Guinea for you know for Queensland and for and for Australia and they actually raise the British flag you know and then call out to the Brit- British and say look where are you come in here and take over we're here we need this blah 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 and the British rebuke them and tell them not to be so silly and to you know go go back and this is a real sore point at the first conference of the premiers of all the all of all of the um, of all of the colonies in 1883 when they're getting together to talk about federation um, they're really pissed off that the British didn't didn't back Queensland and they and they issue a statement statement. statement to to London where they say further acquisition of dominions in the Pacific south of the equator by any foreign power will be highly detrimental to the safety and well-being of the British possessions in Australasia and injurious um, to to the interests of the empire. Um, Henry Parks, you know, who's the founding father of Australia, um, says in in, in 1891, I have no doubt whatever in my mind, if Australia could have spoken with one voice in 1883, New Guinea would have belonged to Australia, and Australia ought to be the mistress of the southern seas. The trade, the commerce of these groups of rich islands ought ought to centre in our ports, and with these advantages we ought to hold mastery of the hemisphere. That is our destiny and it will come. Certainly, it did, um, you know. And but they did manage through this pressure to get Britain to annex the southern part of, of New Guinea. And, and and in 1904, when Australia is federated, it's handed to Australia as a, as a colony to be, you know, to be ruled or a territory they called it to be ruled, you know, to be ruled from from Canberra, um, can, you know, as Canberra was kept being established. In the same period, Fiji, Vanuatu, Samoa, and the Cook Islands are also seized, you know, by by the British. Um, In every one of those instances, it's in response to Australian pressure. But I just did, in terms of noting some of the similarities between that quote about, you know, the further acquisition of dominions in the South Pacific by any foreign power would be detrimental to the possessions in Australasia. In the white paper, you know, in in 2013 there's a quote, Australia seeks to ensure that our neighbourhood does not become the source of a threat to Australia and that no major power with hostile intentions establish bases in our immediate neighbourhood. So it's, you know, very, very much the same, you know, um, the same sort of um, priorities which are driving them now and it argues it is unambiguously in Australia's national interest for the US to be active and engaged in our region as an economic, political and Military influence, uh, as economic, political, and military influence shifts towards our region. So you know, it's not Britain dominions anymore. They want the US here to back up you know Australian imperialism in the region. Um. I'll just give the example of, of Bougainville, uh, which you know, what, what, you, you, part of Papua New Guinea. I mean, actually, if you look at it, it makes no sense that Bougainville is part of Papua New Guinea. It's a colonial fiction. You know, it really is. You know, in terms of ethnically and where it's positioned, part of the Sol- Solomon Islands. But the way that it was all carved up, you know, Bougainville gets pulled into the, you know, what becomes what becomes Papua New Guinea. It's a good example what's happened in Bougainville of the way that Australian imperialism has really impacted, you know, uh, impacted upon the countries that have been the countries that have been colonised and ruled. Um, so you know, first some of the first engagement that Australia has with with Bougainville is kidnapping uh, people to work as slaves on the on the sugar fields in North Queensland. Um, you know, one of them was Captain Robert Towns, after whom Townsville is named, uh, was out going around pinching people off the islands, including Bougainville, to enslave them. Um, I- at the end of World War One, uh, um, Billy Hughes goes to goes to the. Uh, the conference of Versailles, I think it is, a conference at the end of World War One, the League of Nations meeting, where they thrash out how's the world going to be divided up now that the now that the world war is over. And he makes this really hard case that um, the the Germans should be kicked out, the whole of New Guinea should be given to Australia, all the other islands should be given to Australia, and not only that, they should get this special mandate where they can impose their own laws even on these on these countries, including the White Australia policy. And so that they do actually end up imposing the the white, incredibly, the white Australia policy on New Guinea, um, and, and, and this, is, this is used to keep out Japanese immigration and also to keep out Japanese capital. And then you, you sort of basically you can really see in terms of the pattern that develops after this that they have they have this area, but they work systematically to keep it underdeveloped. They say, right, you can't, you know, we're going to plunder your resources, but you can't develop any crops, for example, that compete with our crops. So, you know, farming for bananas or sugar, two very you know profitable ventures, were banned in, in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, and they certainly didn't develop any of the social services. Isn't they you had like this Australian colonial authority on Bougainville? The first school was set up by the colonial authority in 1861, and even then that was only for the Australians that were in Bougainville and their children you know so it's this you know keeping keeping people in, in dire poverty and refusing the development but the the change that comes in the 1960s as well as the importance of Australian mining and the rise of the Australian mining industry and there's copper deposits that are in Bougainville that they knew about from the 20s but they only really moved to develop in the um, in, in in the 1960s and you can really see the barbarity of the imperialism that that that, that develops through through this through this period so mining from then on becomes the this sort of central way that Australian imperialism says PNG is allowed to develop through mining. It's going to be our companies that dig up the resources. You know, in the the resource boom that's happened in the last 10 years, you've actually had about 6% growth of GDP in in PNG, you know, um, through the mining boom, essentially, similar to the mining boom that's that's happened in Australia. But the vast majority of the PNG population are are excluded, of course, from that development. It's only still now 1% of the population that's employed in mining. Senior positions are all filled by Australia. Most of the major corporations are Australia, and all of the consumption that actually happens in the mining areas is imported products from Australia. So the, these little enclaves around the mines, you know, where they talk about, you know, the the economy is really completely disconnected from, from the rest of PNG, and that's part of the real anger that that's, that, that, that's seething there in, in, in PNG and the political system is is that this, you know, you can see the riches, and and, and, and the people have got the people have got none of them. I mean, a long story thought in, in terms of what happens in PNG is there's actually an uprising by the local people, not only against the mine, but calling for independence. And you can really see, you know, in the process of what Australia does in this period, the, centr- the centrality of maintaining, yes their ability to rip the resources out, but also they're absolutely shit-scared of PNG fragmenting into all these, you know, secessionist sort of states across, you know, all the islands. I mean, as we see, you know, hundreds of languages in PNG, they've all been lumped in this thing called PNG, this colonial creation. You know, Australia is absolutely, you know, with an iron fist says you will not be able to secede, Bougainville will not be able to secede, will put down the independence movement. You know, while Australia still has PNG as a formal colony, they do that by occupying the island, Australian officers oversee, you know, PNG military to actually brutally put down the secessionist uprisings. Then when PNG's given formal independence in 1975, it's the indirect sort of rule, you know. They give about $250 million to wage the war on the independence movement in Bougainville through the, through the 80s and 90s, comes from the Australian government. Um, we've spoken far too much about all of that. But, but I, I mean, I think... What what you can sort of see what you can sort of see now so I mean it gives you some indication of the horrible you know the neighbour from hell or whatever the meeting's called you know the way that it's it's Australia's strategic and economic interests that dominate you know and and, and the region suffers as a result of it but what you do see from and, and there's a uh, I suppose the anti-colonial wave that sort of sweeps the world in the 60s and the 70s means that Australia has to give up formal, you know, colonial uh, relations. It's no longer a formal colony in 1975. It goes back to PNG. But from the Howard government in the late 1990s, you get the re-emergence of the explicit colonialism. You know, the you know, uh, basically we we can intervene militarily in the region. We can actually directly run areas in the region and this, you know, this sort of becomes the, you know, this becomes the way that they, that they actually deal, deal with the region. The way it starts with I- in East Timor in 1999, Australian troops occupy East Timor, you know, not because they care about I- East Timorese independence, as we've said, you know, a secure PNG, a centralised PNG, just as important for them was a centralised Indonesia, you know, they don't want Indonesia breaking up into all these different, you know, states that might, you know, that might create problems for them, so they opposed East Timorese independence for years and years and years and years and years and then when they get an opportunity, you know, to actually occupy in 99, as the Indonesians are withdrawing, the Australian military goes in, you know, and, and this starts to legitimise what becomes known as the Howard Doctrine, which is we will use military, you know, intervention in our region for, you know, for security and for humanitarian purposes and then more and more explicitly, you know, for our for our own interests. When they, they actually occupy the Solomon Islands in 2003... Um, <clears throat> You know, with troops going to the Solomon Islands, ostensibly because of the you know social breakdown, and it, I mean it is true. You know, the Asian crisis in 1997, the imposition of neoliberalism through the period did lead to a large amounts of social unrest and a real breakdown in people's living standards. But Australia, you know, Australia is responsible for that. You know, in terms of imposing the neoliberal policies, you know, sort of on, on the region, and as we've seen, keeping keeping people poor. But their response to it is to yeah, occupy the Solomon Islands, and and they and they really you know through this. Period start to dire- directly dic- dictate terms. So again, from the from the white paper, um, there's a um, the, there's a the quote an essential feature of ADF mission since the turn of the century has been the increasingly close cooperation between. Sub- Defence and civilian agencies, you know. So they use the military. If they're not using the military, they're using the federal police. You know, hundreds of federal police go into Papua New Guinea from you know from the early um, from the early 2000s. Federal police all through Indonesia, um, are sensibly for anti-terrorism, you know, sort of operations. Federal police, you know, sort of get de- deployed throughout the region. But also, Australian administrators start being appointed, you know, um, to to senior positions in PNG, for example, the courts, the public service, etc. Australian administrators that are, that, that, are, that, that are put in there. Um, so I don't have time. I've certainly run out of time to, to go into too much detail, you know, about, about the rest of it. But I think in terms of border protection, where border protection comes in, I mean, there's the very obvious thing that Australia's got a problem with refugees, you know. Um, part of that problem is because of imperialism, actually. You know, whether it's your refugees created by the wars that Australia participates in or they don't want to look bad... To their, um, or they don't want to, you know, foul relations with their strategic allies. For example, Rajapaksa in Sri Lanka. You know, we can't be letting Tamils into Australia and preso- providing asylum to them. We've got a crucial strategic relationship, economic relationship, and military relationship with Sri Lanka. So very much part of the refugee problem that Australia has is posed by imperialism and created by imperialism. But the way we can solve it is to, you know, dump it or outsource it on these neo-colonies that we've got. There's certainly that. You know, that's an element that's very well known. I think probably less discussed is the way that the border protection regime has actually been part and parcel of the militarisation of the region. So, you know, as I've said, Australian Federal Police all through Indonesia to disrupt <laughs> people smuggling operations but also to get a foothold in Indonesia. The, the Border Patrols and Border border Command, it's called the Joint Border Command that operates out of Darwin, runs enormous surveillance operations. It's Navy ships that are out through the Indian Ocean, you know, they're, set, they're talking about setting up a, um, a drones base with the US on Cocos Islands, et cetera, to essentially provide this, um, you know, the, and you can see from this map here, the Australian Defence Department is very, very um, acutely aware of the extent to which the Indian Ocean is becoming a more and more and more important place. 80% of the resources that go to China, for example, come through the Indian Ocean, from Africa or from the Middle East. So the US is really looking for a bigger military presence in, in the Indian Ocean, or what they call the Indo-Pacific region. And and you, you can see how, I mean, not like it's any sort of conspiracy or whatever, the two things really go hand in hand, controlling the region in terms of we need to make sure we control the population you know, flows or deal, with the, or deal with the border protection problems, but the way that that is absolutely fundamentally integrated with Australian imperialism, the operations of the Australian military, the operations of the Australian Navy. You're really getting, you know, a massive, a massive build-up in the area. So, and some of it, they do use the pretext of, of, of border protection to do it. And they're explicit in the defence paper that they're very, very active in the north and the west with the border, you know, border patrol command... And that this isn't so much known, you know. But we need to make it more known how active we are to give confidence to Australian industry that we're present in this highly, you know, in this highly strategic region. Um, so, you know, I, I do think, like in those terms, that you know, it, it does become clear. I think with PNG, I and mean, I could you run out of time. I now, mean, I could go into what they've done to Nauru, which is just an absolute disgrace. Essentially, completely recolonised the place. It's Australia that runs it, and it's essentially an Australian penal colony now. The, the, the island of Nauru. But you know, further to the to the west and you you know, to the Indian Ocean and 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 up in Papua New Guinea. You know, asserting Australia's control. You know, by setting up detention centres, by setting up the patrols. You know, it absolutely goes hand in hand with the militarisation of the region. Australia flexing its muscles in the region, and is really driven. You know, by you know by Australia's imperialist interests in the region. So I think you know it is posing itself. You know, quite sharply in the current context. You know, the the colonial nature of what they're doing with PNG. The more we can, to I think, encourage that and flesh that out you know, and link up with the people in PNG that can see this and the students that are protesting against it and against what Australia is doing there to their political system, the way Australia buys off corrupt leaders, the way Australian mining companies profit from the place, you know, the more we we are to actually build a movement I think that can actually actually challenge the system. <laughs>